A friend of mine had a baby not too long ago. So when I had a chance to meet this baby, I did what one does. I went to a store to buy a baby gift. A clerk asks me if I need help, and I say I'm looking for something for a four-month-old. Boy or girl, the clerk asks. The clerks always ask that when I go to buy a baby gift. Boy or girl? And it always catches me short. Because really, why is that question relevant? Does an infant care if it wears pink or blue? Who is so eager to classify and mark babies by gender? And why? These might seem like ridiculous questions. Gender seems so obvious and automatic. It's the first thing they say about us when we're born. And people sing about it in a jillion songs in just about any genre you can think of, from Broadway musicals to rap to rock operas. For instance, like the Who's Tommy. It's a boy, Mrs. Walker, it's a boy. But part of our job as journalists is to ask questions about the things that have come to seem natural, because often they aren't. And we miss important pieces of the story if we get the underlying questions wrong. Our brains seem to make instant calculations when we meet someone. We hear their name, the pitch of their voice. We observe their hair, their clothes, their posture and demeanor. And without even thinking about it, we put them in one gender box or the other. And if we're speaking a language other than English, the adjectives someone might use to describe you indicate whether you are male or female. Ella is alta. She is tall. Él es alto. He is tall. Scholars call this the gender binary. It's the idea that there are two options and two options only, and that they are polar opposites. And more, that these opposites and only these opposites attract. In other words, that being a man or a woman is fixed, a hardwired identity, and that sexually and romantically, men should be attracted to women and vice versa. That might be how it feels for a majority of people. But science, along with real people's lived experience, tell us that this description is way too simple. Humans are more variable. Still, that rigid binary persists, and anyone who challenges it can be met with furious, even violent backlash. Around America right now, states are passing laws aiming to restrict gender to this narrow, polarized idea. The Kansas Senate has passed a bill banning transgender athletes from girls' and women's sports. Utah House passes a plan to ban transgender athletes from girls' high school sports. Today, I will be signing Senate Bill 2536, the Mississippi Fairness Act. The Mississippi Fairness Act would bar biological men from competing in women's sports in Mississippi public schools. That was Tate Reeves, the governor of Mississippi. His is just one of at least 33 states that's trying to prevent trans kids from participating in school sports or from accessing gender-affirming medical care. At last count, there were 127 anti-trans bills pending or recently passed in state houses this year. What do journalists need to understand to cover these initiatives? Why do these issues rile people so much? I'm Elisa Solomon. I'm a professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Among other things, I've written about issues related to gender and sexuality in articles for newspapers and magazines and in books over the last several decades. This is How We Got Here, 
a podcast that takes a step back to look at unexamined assumptions about issues like race, class, immigration, and gender that can get in the way of good journalism. It's a podcast that offers some background and context beneath the stories that seem to be breaking around these concepts. Because the issues we cover aren't snapshots. They're more like a movie that starts in the past and rolls forward to today and keeps going. As journalists, we like to say we're writing the first draft of history. But if we don't know the history behind what we're covering, we run the risk of misinterpreting what we see in the present, what we hear, of not being able to connect the dots. This is episode six, gender and sexuality. Or let's make that plural, genders and sexualities, because there are lots of both. I invited two perfect people to help us get to the bottom of questions about genders and sexualities and why they matter to journalists. Jack Halbersims, a professor of gender studies and English here at Columbia. Jack is the author of seven books and counting. They include Female Masculinity in a Queer Time and Place, Gaga Feminism, Sex, Gender, and the End of Normal, The Queer Art of Failure, and Trans Asterisk, a quick and quirky account of gender variance. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Zach Stafford is an award-winning journalist who recently served as editor-at-large at BuzzFeed. He was the first Black editor-in-chief of The Advocate, the oldest national gay magazine in the U.S., and he worked as an investigative reporter at The Guardian. He's currently a columnist for MSNBC. Hi, Zach. Hello. Jack and Zach, we want to understand how we got here. Why is there all this legislation? about trans issues when there's so many pressing needs around the country. Why the fixation on this? To understand that, I think we need to start by defining our terms. And I know we could spend all day just on this question, but Jack, I'm going to ask you anyway, would you unpack these words for us briefly? Sex, gender, sexuality. What the heck are they? Okay, that, so you're easing me into uh, the show with the easy questions, I take it. Um, <laughs> Sex, gender, and sexuality are a sort of a set of nested concepts that describe the body in seemingly obvious ways in relationship to what we have considered to be natural orientations of the body. But like everything else in human life, sex, gender, and sexuality are all cultural productions that are mapped onto bodies that then filter into everyday life and are verified through various kinds of institutional powers as real. So while we do see people around us and make attributions of male and female to them, in actuality, there are very many sexes and very many genders in the worlds that we live in. Similarly, sexuality is something that has been filtered through a binary that emerged at the end of the 19th century, the homo-hetero binary, and it still seems to be somewhat intact. But I think in recent years, under the pressure of multiple kinds of sexual cultures, the homo-hetero binary has also sort of worn thin as an explanatory concept. That said, sexuality is some combination of bodily desire, orientation to an object of desire, orientation to objects, and ways of interacting with the world that are based upon bodily desires, erotics. 
So you mentioned the 19th century and the way that we talk about sex, gender, and sexuality is grounded in 19th century European drive to classify everything. And when it came to humans, that meant sex, gender, and also the concurrent emerging concept of race. How did those ideas overlap at their origin, and why is it important to understand that connection now? Well, I mean, again, like at the end of the 19th century, under the conditions of colonial expansion, colonial powers made it their mission to explain the world to themselves and to each other and to the peoples that they were engaged in colonizing and conquering. And for that reason, categories of race and gender and sexuality were useful in terms of dividing up the world into various kinds of, you know, moral categories. So some people were seen as developed or primitive. They were seen as predisposed to civilization or more oriented to hunter-gatherer societies. And all of these explanatory systems were seeking certain kinds of scientific gratification. So what we see is ideological systems getting grounded in scientific claims, many of which are extremely contested in the contemporary context. But there were various claims made about sexuality, sexual expression. For example, in the 19th century, some people thought that people from warmer climates were more likely to be very sexual, hypersexual. And people from colder climates were likely to be frigid, you know. And so there's this mapping of the environment onto certain forms of embodiment, morphology of the body and desires. At the same time, Various kinds of eugenic projects were invested in talking about how malleable the body was, where the bodies shifted and changed, not only under the pressure of evolution and of evolutionary mechanisms, but also in much faster timeframes under the auspices of social improvement. So many of the claims about race are also run through reproductive fears and and concerns about reproductive outcomes and are mapped onto sexual behaviors. And therefore, it's very hard to talk about any of these things separate from the others. I was just thinking about that the other day, about how trapped we remain in some respects in that framing of these concepts. I was thinking about it with the flap over Simone Biles, the great African-American gymnast. This just in from the Olympics, Simone Biles has withdrawn from the event finals for vault and the uneven bars. She withdrew from the Olympics because she had the twisties and might have risked her life if she had continued. Biles, as you certainly know, withdrew during the team competition on Tuesday and didn't compete in the all-around on Thursday. She acknowledged she's dealing with what gymnasts call the twisties. It's when they lose their place while spinning in the air. And then she came back and meddled in the balance beam. Incredible. So much has been said about all of that, but the intense focus on her didn't start with the Olympics. It's been constant throughout her career. So I want to go back to just a few weeks before the Olympics, when she became the first female athlete to land this ridiculously difficult vault in a competition, and talk about the way misogyny and racism framed the discussion even when she was performing at her peak. That is, she's excessively scrutinized whether performing brilliantly or needing to step back. She did that amazing vault. Huge air. That is three flips, three times around from board to mat. It is unreal and as well done as anybody, man or woman, 
has competed in. And the judges didn't give her high points. And the New York Times speculated that the judges wanted maybe to discourage others from risking such a tough move. And, and also that they might fear that Simone Biles would run away with any competition she enters by doing moves that nobody else can achieve. And that just strikes me as being driven entirely by these underlying ideas of gender and race. I mean, nobody insisted on leveling the playing field when Michael Phelps won all those swimming medals. Women athletes often are caught up in a kind of a, a set of contradictions that certain ideals of femininity cannot be expressed in athletic prowess. And so, you know, you have gymnasts like Simone Biles doing these like amazing athletic, powerful feats. And then she has to do a little pose where she sticks out her tush and, you know, cocks her wrists or something. Right. Yeah. No, I was, I think like everything you're describing, especially with women's sports, and I think we're all kind of getting to the point of answering the question of like, why are trans kids? being policed so much, specifically in women's sports, is because women's sports as like a cultural arena in America, at least, or in the West, is a place where we manage women's bodies and how women's bodies can move. And we see it often. And race is always intersection. Or the thing I would say that is kind of the smoking gun in it all. So I think about Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova. These are two women who are very, very famous. Uh, but, you know, Maria Sharapova was making more money than Serena, even though Serena was outperforming constantly. Maria was being catered to in the media a lot by being, you know, because she's a blonde woman. Um, and they were just trying to manage her purity and making her great and trying to make her better than she is. And, you know, they always compared her to Serena when in reality, Serena always won. There was never a chance for Maria. And Serena continues to dominate. So there, I, I, that's why I use the word management is that like Simone and Serena are similar in that you have these organizations, these institutions saying you're too great. But when they're saying you're too great, you're too, you're too much better than white people. So we need to manage you. We need to reduce you down so that white people don't feel uninspired to compete because that's what the New York Times is getting at when their speculation is that Simone's so great that people won't compete anymore. And when they say those people, they're mm -hmm. meaning young white girls who that's what I think we as an American society are really interested in maintaining that purity and those people to feel productive in our, in our communities. These classificatory frameworks from the 19th century then are, are still with us in these very, very strong ways. And then anything that didn't neatly fit those categories had to be accounted for somehow, right? How, how do you explain something that doesn't fit? So, like, they have to come up with some kind of explanation, vocabulary, the point that you're making and that I think Zach is expanding here is that gender binaries are utterly artificial the conceptions, that bodies in any number of contexts are similar and different in multiple ways. And, you know, as many, many scholars have shown, the gender binary requires a massive amount of support in order to function. And the punishing of trans girls in women's sports is one way to try to manage this very, very rocky concept of the gender binary. The other way to do it, and Zach is referring to this, is of course to, to constantly sort of try to make bodies of color into the exception. And then where they become exceptional and exceptionally, you know, superior in some way, the punishment descends. And we, as Zach said, Serena Williams is just a, a perfect example of somebody who completely dominated her sport 
and was punished her entire career for doing so. And, you know, whether she was playing Venus and people were saying the match was rigged or she was making a very principled stand over a poor call, you know, a line judge calling her for a foot fault when nobody had been called in for a foot fault in a decade. She then is sort of represented as a dangerous person on the court. Certainly a threatening gesture, isn't it? If you're an official in this game, you don't have to put up with threatening behaviour. Despite the fact that white athletes are often acting out in racially inappropriate ways or, you know, might be expressing racist sentiments, but are not seen as dangerous. The radio announcer for the San Francisco 49ers, who was suspended for comments about a player's dark skin. Oklahoma girls basketball team that was called the N-word by a sports announcer calling the game. And he said, so there are certain ways in which bodies are being classified some of which have to do with these very dubious scientific developments and others of which are developed culturally and socially and again seem as if people are just in a neutral way describing what's going on when in fact there are very very clear racial biases in many of these judgments so what's a journalist to do in the face of this zach how do we cover the story of Simone Biles or a match with Serena Williams and account for these ways that they're Mm -hmm. represented, constrained, and punished? I think you just kind of have to call it as it is. And we're seeing that some of Simone Biles' colleagues that are the male athletes, some of them that are Black, have come forward and said, not only did she do something incredible, but she did it better than I even did in the men's version. And I think that allyship is really important to happen in public. Because what we're talking about um, is all public context. Like these, these people would not be punished unless it wasn't happening in public. And the reason why they're getting punished is because when we do things in public, it signals to others watching that it's okay. And that's why you see this management and policing and surveillance happening so much. But I think with journalists, you have to kind of just see it and call it out consistently. We're seeing journalists do a better job of it. I think a lot about the Meghan Markle story recently and how there's been a lot of great journalism about how she was covered in her pregnancy compared to Kate and how there were just blatantly racist headlines towards Meghan where Kate was being kind of coddled as a white woman in the royal family. Just take a look at some of these headlines. So for Kate, one headline, while you can always say it with flowers, a floral coat popular in Victorian times is making a comeback thanks to our royal newlyweds. A similar headline for Meghan, how Meghan Markle's flowers may have put Princess Charlotte's life at risk. And I think what we all know to be true here is that racism and transphobia and homophobia are very tangible things that you can mark and track and report on. It's just you got to let journalists know that that's a valuable place to go. And that takes journalism institutions to say, you know, gender is a worthwhile beat. We should have a desk for this. We should have a desk for LGBTQ stories. This should be central to stories because they're really great places to chew on something. And I think when we talk about Simone Biles, the story is way more interesting if you talk about this exceptional Black athlete being policed due to being Black. That is the story, and that's a better version of the story than just, oh, you know, the judges need to, like, make sure that these young white girls are okay, or, like, we don't deter people from competing anymore. I think you just go head in. So, And we're seeing that happen in journalism. People are becoming more interested in identity as, as a ground to really do some great excavation into why things and systems are happening. Because, as we all know, gender, race, sexuality are all types of power and ways in which power move and don't move through this world. So we should use them to tell stories of people. So you mentioned homophobia among these, which we haven't brought the the gay piece into the story so much yet. So let's turn to that and let's pick up the story in the middle of the 20th century. 
Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. The CBS News survey shows that two out of three Americans look upon homosexuals with disgust, discomfort, or fear. Of course, there were gay people long before that, and trans people too. But if we're going to focus on the U.S. and American journalism, let's think about the field of sexology that comes out of that classificatory impulse that we were talking about before, and the first Kinsey report that comes out in 1948. What was in that report and why was it important and what impact did it have on queer peoples? I mean, I think the Kinsey report was interesting partly because it opened up the question of sexuality and gave an enormous amount of information about what people do that was not at all captured by just the idea of, you know, monogamous marriage. I discovered that there was practically nothing known about human sexual behavior in comparison with what we knew about about the sexual behavior of other animals. And it also produced a scale, you know, a kind of reminder of ideas of some sort of essential bisexuality that go back to the late 19th century, and that suggested that men and women express all kinds of degrees of femininity and masculinity, and that femininity doesn't just map onto femaleness in a complete way, and masculinity doesn't map onto maleness. I think the mysterious process here that we need to unpack a little bit is how it is that heterosexuality becomes such an unexamined category in the 20th century. Not just how does homosexuality get flagged and vilified and pathologized and turned into a social problem and targeted with all kinds of treatments, let alone the kinds of targeting that happens to trans people. But if we go back to Simone Biles, we'll realize that The real story in women's athletics has to do with these invisible kind of creepy men hanging around the sidelines who, as we've been finding out recently, have been involved in all kinds of uh, bullying, sexual touching, abuse, and so on. And the fact that that story can go unremarked for so long, right, because any time a man is touching a, a female body, Until very recently, we have thought of that as heterosexual and therefore okay. And because we have cultivated forms of femininity that are compliant, therefore heterosexuality goes sort of unquestioned, as does conventional masculinity. And this is why I would say in terms of journalism, the pivot that needs to happen is turning away from what seems to be the extraordinary and exceptional, you know, narratives about trans and gay bodies And there needs to be a little bit more attention paid to the inscriptions of violence that pass through normative masculine bodies on a regular basis and go unremarked and go completely unremarked. That's the story that journalism should be after. I mean, I I agree with that so much. And I think a lot about mass shootings. And I think a lot about um, Ocean Vong, the writer, recently went viral for his remarks on the lexicon in which we teach men how to talk about their bodies. In this culture, we we celebrate boys through the lexicon of violence. You're killing it. You're making a killing. Smash them. Blow them up. You went into that game, guns blazing. And you look around every day and see how that lexicon, that way in which we've gendered men or told them in which they have to perform gender, is killing all of us. 
mass shootings have become a focal point of that is that it's very consistent that these are white men of a certain background, certain class, certain geography, everything. You can literally probably predict this from the data, but yet people will sympathize with them. Oh, they're having a hard day. They're going through this stuff, like the shootings in Atlanta. Oh, he was having an issue with sex addiction. But really, the issue is here is how we've constructed gender in all of this and the, the anxieties and the pressures that have been put upon these men. Because I do think I was just talking to a friend earlier today who is an editor of a different magazine. And I said, you know, interesting. There's so many rules to be a straight man. There's like an infinite amount of rules that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, there's a lot of violence or destruction that hits you immediately. And Jack is right. We should talk about that because you have evidence of it every single day when you go to the market when you go to the grocery store when you drive down the street you cut someone off they get violent like we see it respond every day more and more ways than our queer bodies do we're still a very small part of this population but angry white men are literally everywhere right now so i love how you guys are are just sort of flipping the script here so zach you know you've you've worked as an editor and a reporter and a columnist so be the editor of the gender vertical What stories do you want to assign this week that would be along the lines of what Jack was just talking about? When I've run LGBTQ newsrooms specifically, you know, I was an investigative reporter. I worked on the crime beat, which Iowa saw as a crisis around gender. When I was reporting on hate crimes, what I saw most of the time were people trying to live in a, in a box that didn't fit and them lashing out and then hurting people that reminded them that they were supposed to be in this box. So you saw a lot of like gay men that were in the closet or men that were in the closet who had same-sex behaviors who people found out and they would kill these lovers or people that were having sex with trans women and people would find out and they would kill them. So when I was doing that reporting for many years, I was like, this is a crisis of gender in this society that we, people are so afraid of being outed as being not normative that they're willing to destroy bodies. And for me, that is a story of gender in America. Mass shootings are that. Uh, The financial crisis was a story of like gender in America and what we're doing to maintain gender status, class, all these things. So I think we all have it there. It just repositions. Well, wait, wait, wait. Say, say, Say more about that, about the financial... Yeah. About the ways in which, you know, you look at the 2008 financial collapse, people were taking out, you have the subprime mortgages, you have the housing crisis. People were trying to live this dream. They were over leveraged, too much debt. And what drives these desires is to be normative, to be like everyone else, to be exceptional. And that's to participate in capitalism and a capitalism that requires a certain gendered behavior, a certain class behavior, and even racialized behavior. So I think you should talk about those things in a real way and not just be like, oh, people want it to be rich, but why? What motivates them? And it is to feel like others around you and to feel more exceptional than those others. And that is a very gendered conversation, I think, every time. So I imagine some straight white men listening to us might feel that we're unfairly clobbering them. Can you distinguish this idea of masculinity from individual men? Well, if we're thinking about how issues pertaining to social identity get reported in the press, generally speaking, individual men and normative masculinity is not remarked upon at all. That's the whole point. So the fact that we're suggesting that there's a category that is never reported as a problem and yet is the the place from which massive amounts of violence issues suggest that we we shouldn't actually even be doing that work of trying to soften the blow for somebody who might be listening and saying, oh, all men aren't like that. The, the point is not all men anything. 
what we're debating here is, and what we're talking about is, how are gender and sexuality, race and class constructed in a way that the same small group of people maintain power in a vastly stratified and very complex society. And one of the answers is what Zach was talking about in relationship to the way in which, you know, the financial industries manage to maintain the particular gulf between rich and poor, which is an absolutely racialized divide, particularly post-COVID. But the other way is by making certain groups seem to be a problem and then focusing an enormous amount of time and energy trying to explain why someone is doing X, why someone is doing Y, when the fact that a trans girl wants to compete in women's sports, you know, as countless articles out there will say, is not at all a problem for women's sports. That person identifies as a woman. She is a woman. She may or may not be taking hormones, but then other girls on the team may or may not have more or less testosterone in their bodies than she does. Notice that Castor Semenya, mm -hmm. the South African runner, was assigned female at birth, also did not match the International Olympic Committee standards for classification of, of womanhood. So what's being policed here is a very narrow category of woman. And at the same moment, not much attention is being paid to men's sports, where there are other kinds of things going on. There's a pressure to dope, pressure to produce a certain kind of physique and so on. So it's the categories of the normative that do the damage, but it's the classifications of gay and trans that get the attention. And there's an asymmetry here that we're trying to sort through, I think. Say that again. So normative categories that do the damage, right? Because Castor Semenya is just a great runner. Mm -hmm. Here's the start list for the final of the women's 800 metres. No doubt most of the attention will be on the young woman from South Africa, Castor Semenya. There's no reason to pull Castor Semenya out of the race and say we're going to have to do some tests on you. Semenya running for gold now in front of Dian Saba and Bishop and Wambui, but she's left the others in her wake. And Castor Semenya is going to do what most people thought she would do in the 800, and she runs away and wins it brilliantly. Other than other women who were losing to Castor Semenya said, I don't know, she looks kind of like a guy. Does she have a lot of testosterone? Is she even a woman? Right? And then the Olympic Committee goes into recess to examine her, and it takes a year and a half, mind you, to come up with the answer that, well, she is a, a woman. The sports world's highest court ruled yesterday that Semenya must take medication to reduce her unusually high testosterone level if she wants to compete. But she may have more testosterone than is allowed, and therefore we're going to take away some of her records. Track and field competition gets underway tomorrow at the Tokyo Olympics. You will not see one of the sport's brightest stars, two-time Olympic gold medalist Castor Semenya of South Africa. She is the fastest woman in the world in the 800 meters. And under new rules, Semenya and other female athletes who refuse to lower their naturally high testosterone levels have been barred from competing in some events. So it's a completely ambiguous solution to this problem brought about by people who believe that gender is binary. So this makes no sense. Right. And also so arbitrary because they're not saying somebody else is being pulled out because their legs are longer or their VO2 max is higher. 
Right, right. And they may have, lots of bodies have a predisposition to a particular kind of muscularity. Lots don't, you know? These are specious arguments, but they get projected onto gender because we believe that where there is gender, there is clarity. And yet every single one of these cases, in fact, only brings home the point that where there is gender, there is some kind of social construction at work. So why is this an issue that can so easily rile the base? You know, when when it's time to wage culture war, it's time to talk about queer people, trans people, gay and lesbian people. I think it has a lot to do with what Jack is talking about, is that the binary requires a lot of daily maintenance and news and the clothing stores you go to, et cetera. So we've invested a lot of capital into this. So when you do have a case with sports, which sports are supposed to be ubiquitous in this country, like everyone plays sports, everyone takes part of it, and it's a very gendered thing without you even questioning why it's gendered. So when there's a disruption there, quote unquote, people all ascend on it. And it does feel as if even liberals don't fully side with trans kids. I mean, that's why these bills are doing quite well. Even my own mother struggles with understanding why we should let trans kids play in certain sports leagues because she too, due to her whole life being part of this binary, she's bought into like the essential practices of it and that we must maintain it. And there's this idea around children that they don't know yet. I mean, I think a lot of us queer people have been like, you know, you don't know until you know, like take your time, figure it out. But there's something about a trans kid saying, I am this person, being so aware that is frightening to straight people and cis people. And I think it's because they don't know themselves and they're projecting that onto these kids. Because I, I do deeply believe that these kids know who they are and they know what they want and need. And that's frightening to adults who live in a world that they have bought into the lie that is heterosexuality and cisgender. And these young people are presenting a potential that like maybe this thing that you've bought into isn't actually real. You've been doing this forever and it's not actually existing. Because it's actually really mundane to let these kids play. These are not professional athletes. This is like your little nephew or niece playing soccer. It's really not high stakes. There's no money tied to it. Capitalism isn't getting that much better off you participating in your local soccer team. But it's a part of a larger ideal that if they do well and they're accepted and a family see this as normative, then that's going to change everything for everyone. And that's where sports become an issue because sports is kind of this like gateway to being a normal kid and to being a normal productive person in society. So if you let these trans kids do it and they're good, actually, if they're not good and happy and okay, that's way more dangerous than even a caster semina. Yet even in the legislation that would prevent trans kids from being able to take puberty blockers, some of those laws would penalize parents who are supporting their children, parents who are accepting and listening and not being paternalistic in that sense whose doctors and therapists and the whole regime that maybe used to be in a kind of enemy position is changing in some respects, in some places at least, and is supporting these children. And yet all of them would be outlawed by some of these laws. Um, And I think what you're pointing to is that this legislation, unlike other forms of legislation around kids or families or whatever, is really aggressive in not just erasing this trans kid's lived experience, but also everyone that touches this kid's life that says you're okay. And whenever you see legislation doing that, that's when you should be like, wait, this isn't probably about that singular person. This is about like a, a group of people wanting to erase another group of people because they fear what they may present to society. Because how these people are, are imagining these bills in Texas, where 
parents are literally, and I've spoken to some of these parents, are literally moving out of the state so that they can keep their kid. When you have kids not being able to get access to food because parent parental abuse, but the state's doing nothing. They're not letting them get access to real education or let, making them go to school, but not the state's doing nothing. But you are telling me the state's intervening on a family who has gone out of their way to pay for access to a terrible medical system but that is so expensive and so not accessible, but they've gone out of the way to give them access to an entire care team to let this kid play and understand their bodies on a timeline that makes them feel good. They are the people we should be throwing into prison, at least culturally. That's wild. And that's not about them at all. That's about, you know, the ideologies that we're fighting against transphobia and homophobia and all these other things together. And of course, the idea of protection of children was a weapon of anti-gay movements for a very long time. You know, there shouldn't be gay teachers. Gay people shouldn't be able to adopt that this impulse to protect children seems to be a... I mean, what are they really protecting children from, right? Um, Nothing. A child should remain not adopted rather than to go into a loving home of lesbian parents, let's say, who is that protecting? It's also protecting that ideology. And so children are sort of weaponized. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. I think that this is just so much of a smokescreen. As Zach is saying, having a trans child enter a sport on the team of their choosing that matches up with their deeply felt gender identity, you, you know, this changes nothing. But what it does do is it implies that not only do trans children know who they are, but but that the whole relationship that we've set up between parent and child is also under a certain amount of question. So I think when it comes to trans children, a lot of what is implicitly being critiqued is what we call in, in other contexts, if someone's telling us what to do and telling us they know better than us, we call them paternalistic. And we presume that that's okay in the context of the family. And I think what we're learning in this generation is that it is never okay to second guess someone's experience and their, their deeply felt sense of themselves. And the, the only right response is uh, to listen to that. Yeah, and to bring it back to Simone Biles, I, I didn't really. I, I love that she's become our kind of touch point. Is that you look at gymnastics and Larry Nasser, the Olympic coach, who was so revered and so beloved, come to find out he had been sexually assaulting hundreds of young women, and no one had been doing anything about it. Michigan Judge Rosemary Aquilina pronounced Larry Nasser's fate, up to 175 years for sexually assaulting scores of women and girls under the guise of medical treatment. After seven days of painful testimony, there's still so many questions about why the abuse went on for so long. People certainly knew, but no one cared so much to really take care of these kids. When you see these bills coming through about protecting young girls in sports, you have so many other examples to show when we let heterosexuality just continue to operate unchecked, how many people are hurt. But for some reason, we're so obsessed with trans kids as they are the issue here. And they're not. It's straight straight men every time. When journalists call you, Jack, as an expert on issues of gender and sexuality, what questions do they get wrong? What are the things that you wish they would ask you? Or what homework would you wish that they would do first? And are there times when you kind of need to reroute where the the conversation is going? 
Honestly, I don't do a ton of those kinds of interviews anymore. So that, that question might just be moot in the sense that, like I said, I believe that journalists are told to, in some sense, bypass academics from whom they will get unnecessarily complicated and theoretical answers to questions that the journalists believe have simple answers to. And I know that in many, many different times when I have been the person documenting a subculture, a drag king culture, or making sense of some sort of shift in consciousness around trans issues, I'll be told that we would rather hear that from a trans child, or we would rather hear that from a performer than hear it bottled up and turned into, you know, something incomprehensible by an academic. So what I wish is that people would stop being afraid of complex answers to complex questions. And I don't even think I give particularly complex answers. And so really, it's not about getting the right question. I mean, I think an academic who is at all skilled in public intellectual engagement knows how to turn a bad question into a good one, because you pretty much have to do that all the time. What advice, Zach, would you give to reporters who are covering these anti-trans bills, for example? Like, what kinds of sources should they talk to? What kinds of questions should they ask? What kind of framing should they bring to it? I think people have to always rem- like think about as a journalist, like, what is true and what is fiction? These myths around gender, around like this like, scary man in the bathroom, the fact that men playing in women's sports, they're going to dominate all this time, just plays into a lot of stereotypes around gender. I know a lot of men that are terrible at sports. They may play on a women's team. That does not mean they are good. So I think you have to look at your question and think, what stereotypes am I propping this up on? And are they real or are they based in my imagination around gender or race in this country? You know, assuming a Black person is scary or things like that. Well, all these things like tell you a lot about who you are and where you're coming at, which is fine. We all have a point of view, but I think being more critical when you enter a conversation with someone of where you're coming from, so you know how their answer may be reinterpreted by you or where it can go is really vital here. And that's where I've always come from the position of journalism is not essentially objective. I think it's really, objectivity is a goal of journalism, but we are subjective people moving through the world. When I sit down with a source, my blackness, my queerness, whatever, will inform how they talk to me and how we talk about things. And I think as long as you know that, and that's part of the story and a part of how you're framing and thinking about it, then you can save yourself from these really bad situations where you're reporting something that's based on a myth. And I see a lot of gender essentialism happening all the time, that girls are all this way, men are this way. And that, and people let it slide because you're told every day that this is real, that the binary is real, that men are masculine, women are feminine. So I think you just got to be as a journalist to make sure that like, why, what is inspiring you to ask this question? Is it a part of a larger, you know, pursuit of a gender politic that's happening around you? Or is it really because you're trying to get at the heart of this? And at the heart of every story is a person. There is a trans kid that's being blocked from playing on her soccer team or on her basketball team. I think if you focus on that humanity of it all, you can build out from there and really tell a dynamic story because I think a lot of queer people, as Jack's kind of alluding to, and I mean, when we talk about drag kings or drag queens or drag culture, it's usually, when reporters go in there, it's about the shock and awe of queerness. It's not about like the lived experience of like why drag culture exists, why do drag kings exist, what are they pushing against, what's the politics that they're kind of riling up against. And journalists, as Jack is mentioning, are just not interested in that complicated question. And I think journalism needs needs to get more complicated to survive all of this because the world is super complicated now and we need to be rising to this occasion. 
journalism can no longer be seen kind of like in a white men running all the newsrooms and it's only about white households because they own TVs and black people don't. Like black people own a lot of TVs now. Queer people own a lot of TVs. We got streaming platforms. We're everywhere. So I think that democratization that's happening is going to have to show up in how we tell these stories too. I mean, a lot of a lot of mainstream publications still to this day wouldn't send, for instance, a trans reporter to cover a trans story, um, you know, for fear of it being too biased or something like that. Or a black reporter to cover Black Lives Matter, or and I've seen the opposite happen in my career. I've been in situations where editors have said, "You look like the people that we're writing about. Can you go in and bed? They'll never clock you. They'll never see." And I've been a part of situations where editors. I had a situation with an editor at a newspaper I will not name, where they loved that I was a black man that was going to go talk to the police because something could happen. And so there's ways in which, like. For me, that was just proof that my body is still my body when I enter these spaces and that I have to think about my positionality as, as I go through these. And, you know, white men, my colleagues that are white men that are straight, they're sent everywhere to do everything. And no one ever questions what their body does when it enters a space because, you know, their bodies in kind of ways symbolize a colonial project that is America. Like it's all about white men entering spaces and trying to excavate stories and tell stories and reposition them. So in many ways, journalism has a bad history of only perpetuating the violence that a lot of folks like us have been trying to deal with. But also if the story is is like protests against the police, should you send a white journalist to cover that? I mean, exactly. isn't the bias going to be much more damaging yeah. if the white journalist is unable to see why people would be calling for the defunding of the police? You know, I mean, this makes any person has an interest in any story. Yeah, it's just some interests are presumed to be very close and are read off the body and other interests are deemed to be acceptable. Yeah. Uh, other investments are deemed to be distant enough to be acceptable. But if you send a white guy to report on a protest against the police, chances are you're going to hear about, you know, dangerous looters and the crowd mm -hmm. was unruly. And is this really what we want right now? Well, that's also extremely biased reporting and it's biased reporting of the kind that we're all too familiar with to have a black reporter go and report in sensitive and invested ways about the massive outpouring of rage against the police from communities of color, isn't that a better story? And that's not, that's a story that we still don't know enough about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you're 100% correct. And I think we're seeing some reckoning with that lately with just so much evidence to show that police officers will lie in their incident reports. It's That's happened forever, and I've been writing about it forever. But people forever just took it as truth when you got a report from the police PR department saying, you know, this happened, it was this incident, whatever. And that, those were unchallenged documents for most of all of journalism. It's not just till the past few years that we've seen people really, really challenge them in a, in a mainstream way, where the New York Times is even challenging them. But it's because we believe the police don't lie. They're, they, they're here to protect us. And it's like... Think how many lives have been destroyed because we've bought into this, this falsehood that no one ever thought to question. And I remember when I was in Chicago and I worked for The Guardian, I did a series of work around how Chicago police disappeared, thousands of Black people, and some of them were tortured and some died. And we were using incident reports to show that there was like missing information in these, and these didn't make sense, and people disappeared for two days, and they ended up here, how that happened. And when that came out, my colleagues at other outlets we're trying to say that me and my colleague were like lying, that we were misreporting, that we were, how dare us challenge these reports that they reported on and said were truths. And I think like our conversation today has been mostly about how you should be questioning these things that we think are self-evident and really aren't.
and who, who, who gets to see themselves of it and who doesn't tells you a lot about race and gender and class in this country right now. And is there a difference between mainstream venues that you've worked for and the specifically gay press that you've worked for? Yeah. Yeah, it really does. It changes. It's like, you know, at MSNBC now, how I talk about things is very different than how I'd maybe talk about them at The Advocate or how we even name communities or what even some editors see as truth. Too. I think like where I saw a lot of great change in my career was when I was at The Guardian. The Guardian is more left-leaning. Um, we did a lot of stories where sex workers were interviewed and used as real sources that were talking about the police and their communities. And I had been at outlets before, like the Chicago Tribune, where that was like, you said someone was engaged in sex work. They were like, well, nothing they say can be true. It's not real. And there was a way, and I was like, why is this not real? Like this person is a real person moving through the world. So that's like, who gets to tell the truth and who doesn't is radically changing. And a lot of the outlets, like the black outlets and the queer outlets have helped pave up ways and imagining that we should have a voice and an opinion. So we see it changing. It's not changing fast enough, but I mean, it just was last year that the New York Times stopped saying just gay and lesbian. They now say LGBTQ. It took forever and there was a huge fight over that. And just the other day, they're fighting over pronouns and that they won't go Mm -hmm. and change if a reporter transitions or changes their pronouns. They won't change their pronouns in the bylines because it may, it makes the readers not trust the reporting. So they're still even in there. Like there's an anxiety around we've committed so much to pronouns as a a system that's valid and all. It's just kind of wild. And we should be listening to people. And they didn't even use gay for a really long time. They were using homosexual, I think, into the 80s, right? I think you're right. It was like, yeah, the AIDS epidemic, it was definitely homosexuals and all the reporting that got a lot of backlash due to them not reporting enough and then reporting terribly in other parts. Right. Rare rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals. That was the headline, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We should wrap up. Jack and Zach, it's been a privilege to talk to you, and I hope we get to do it again before long. Thank you, Robert. Thank you so much. How We Got Here is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism in partnership with Columbia Journalism Review. This episode was created by me, Alisa Solomon. Joanne Farian is our producer. Meg Britton-Mellish and Ali Pichon are our associate producers. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard. Additional audio engineering by Jim Battelle and A.J. Mangone. Winnie O'Kelly is our executive producer and Dean of Academic Affairs here at the J School. Original theme music, The Lens, by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Leanne Herter created our podcast logo. Junie Chun is our production coordinator. Special thanks to Dolores Barkley, Andre Wood, Donna Merabi, Andrew Lina, Laura Muha, and Michelle Wilson. And special thanks to August Cobb for the baby vocals. You can find other episodes, additional resources, and a full list of music and other credits at hwgh.org. That's hwgh.org. <laughs>